This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, November 2nd, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The voters for Trump were so powerful, as Trump said himself very strongly, that there needed to be a less watery version, like a boat, but with roly-roly things where the oars go. This gave rise to automobile caravans for Trump. Thousands of people responded on Facebook that they were coming to this car parade today, and drivers tell me they hope this shows other drivers on the road just how much support there is for President Donald Trump. It was just exciting to, to do this and to think that we were doing something positive. We're to have a good time and uh, we're to keep things peaceful and um, keep things, have some class. That was from an Ohio Trump caravan where there were no allegations of classlessness. But in New York, the caravanners weren't entirely peaceable. A large caravan weaved its way through Westchester County at one point, stopping traffic on the Mario Cuomo Bridge. Which makes sense. Nothing gets on the good side of an undecided voter in an overwhelmingly blue state than creating a traffic snarl. Also, since of the top four antagonists of Donald Trump, which are China, CNN's Chris Cuomo, the 1619 Project, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, two out of four of them were the sons of Mario Cuomo. So why not stick it to a bridge named after that guy? In Texas, things got a little rougher with the caravan as a Biden-Harris campaign bus, though without Biden or Harris on it, was surrounded. The FBI said Sunday they're investigating a standoff between a Trump caravan and a Biden campaign bus last week. The bus was traveling between San Antonio and Austin, Texas on Friday when SUVs and pickup trucks flying Trump 2020 flags drove near and around it. Reportedly, a Democratic campaign staffer's car was sideswiped. Thankfully, our president, mindful that the situation should not escalate, criticized the caravan. They send buses, they send trucks, they set up these caravans, massive caravans. In many cases, they put their worst people in the caravan. They're not going to put their best in. It's a long, very dangerous journey. They can stop them, but they chose not to. No, I'm just kidding. You didn't say that. We put that together when the caravan was a bunch of Central Americans. Trump applauded his supporters, and he did not urge caution. This is of a piece with an overall theme of his campaign, presidency, and life, that Trump promises to serve those who support him. Biden, on the other hand, is promising through narration provided by Brad Pitt this. To work just as hard for the people who voted for him as those who didn't. To be a president for all Americans. I'm Joe Biden, 
And I approve this message. That's a nice normal message that shouldn't in a normal election work because normally the other guy would say, no, I'm for all Americans. And the argument over who's for all Americans becomes just a less precise proxy of the race itself. But in this election, Trump doesn't even give lip service to being for all Americans because lip service is his greatest currency and to do so would undermine the message he wants to give that it's an us versus them contest. In a contest of I'm for all of us versus us versus them. You can see why all of us casts a wider net. It's a basic, basic message. And I'm for all of you almost never works because it's so easily countered. But Trump will not and cannot counter it. Therefore, this election becomes the choice between a man who never has been more popular than he's been unpopular who didn't win the approval of most people and didn't govern with the interests of most people in mind. He's actually ceding most people to the other guy. He's being quite aggressive about it. He takes great pleasure in telling us how he's not for all of us. Beyond the horribleness of the sentiment, it's a bizarre tactic. I'm just not seeing how almost all Americans don't choose the candidate of all Americans over the candidate of some Americans come election day. I guess the Trump campaign figures they'll just have to block that bridge when they come to it. On the show today, we explore the popular notion of the shy Trump voters, the supposed hidden force that will show themselves and become unshy in 24 hours time. But first, Donald Trump is campaigning lightly on the economy and his stewardship of the corona crisis, largely on revelations about his opponent's son, Those allegations are that a business associate says he saw a reference to a deal that was never consummated from which Joe Biden may have benefited if the deal had gone through and if the inference of the business associate is correct. That associate is Tony Bobulinski. I don't think his allegations hold much water or any water at all, but I know that and came to that conclusion because I read reporting on Bobulinski and the story and the genesis of the story and the flaws of the story. I think it's an interesting story, probably just that, just a story. And it's also interesting in that it has been quashed by media gatekeepers, both editorial and technological. Twitter originally banned the story, then backtracked a little bit on what the justification of their ban was. Newsrooms also passed on the story in a way I've never seen them pass on an election allegation before. I don't buy what Bobolinsky is peddling or Giuliani or the New York Post, but as a principal, I don't think it's so easy a call as it's been portrayed. I'm somewhat shocked that the average person will go into voting not even knowing what the word Bobolinsky means. It's fine by me. It aligns with my preference in the election, my strong preference. But that's not a principle, is it? Mm. So to talk through all manner of Bobolinsky conundra with me is David Folkenflik. He's NPR's media reporter and my consigliere on these matters. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Donald Trump has called it the biggest, and then he corrects himself, okay, the second biggest political scandal in history, the XYZ affair. 
Teapot Dome? No, actually not. He's speaking about some guy named Tony, Tony Bobolinsky, who is in business with Hunter Biden. And if everything that he says can be believed, maybe Hunter Biden's father knew about a business deal that might have given him money, but actually never did. Yes, yes, quite a scandal. The question is, or it might not seem after my run up to it, but the question is, why isn't much of the media making a huge deal? Granted, because it's not that solid a story. And even if true, we don't know exactly what it would mean in terms of Hunter's relationship to Joe Biden. That said, media usually does uh, quite a bit of digging into political scandals. And even when there's not much there, there's the kind of story that can be done Basically, why is the right wing going nuts with this story? I have noticed, and I think this is a very tough one, I have noticed a dearth of coverage compared to the usual amount of coverage that we'd normally see even for a story this poorly sourced. And I have to think that this is because we're right up against an election. I wonder if this is a good thing, a bad thing, or just what exactly the nuances of these decisions are. The best person I could think to talk this out with is my friend David Folkenflik, who covers media for NPR. David, hello, and a Bobolinsky to you. A Bobolinsky to you. <laughs> Bobolinsky. So <laughs> NPR, I guess it's in the middle of the, the criticism of it because the ombudsman for NPR, who has nothing to do with your job. She's a quasi-outside person who just weighs in on NPR's editorial choices. She essentially said, the reason you're not hearing much, if anything, about this on NPR is that it's just not a story. Fair enough, but, you know, you sometimes cover stories that aren't stories, and your story is why this isn't a story and why other people think this is a story. Do you think the Bobolinsky story, per se, is any different from that? Well, I want to parse out, uh, as best I understand it, what was said and what wasn't said by whom and when. In this case, there was a a statement by one of our most senior news editors, uh, Terry Samuel, who's a managing editor, uh, a political journalist and journalist of, of, of many decades uh, distinction, who said essentially, we're not going to waste our listeners' time on stories that aren't really news. That was a quote that was then tweeted out by the office of the public editor, which is what we call the ombudsman these days, which is sort of a paid external critic of the of the organization. Uh, and she was trying to review and understand our handling of the story. Now, we did address the story. Uh, my, my colleagues on the digital uh, side, uh, Shannon Bond, uh, addressed the question of uh, social media platforms essentially uh, dampening down and constricting circulation of the original story in the New York Post, uh, uh, making claims very hard to uh, evaluate and, and hard to verify claims, I might add, about uh, whether – Hunter Biden was trading on his family name and, and dragging his father into some corrupt scheme. And Samuel said, look, this is essentially not uh, verified material. We want to be careful in how we handle that. We're not simply going to ch chase ghosts, although that's not the way he put it. I wrote a similar story trying to break down why the media, why NPR, but really why the media didn't go whole hog on this. And I think that you had material being circulated by the president's associates and friends, including his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, some of whom, especially Giuliani, have proven not to be credible sources of information, giving out material that uh, was not uh, verified from sources that were not themselves authenticated. And when you take that all in combination, it meant that you tread very warily. The New York Post is not the kind of uh, publication that has a long track record of great uh, investigative journalism that holds up to good scrutiny. 
you know, nothing about this story said, you know, even though we can't authenticate it on its own, it stands on its own two feet proudly. Now, uh, Tony Bombolinsky comes forward and says, I can verify some of this and I have my own material. And then you're, you're wading into slightly different waters. But the, the idea that NPR wasn't doing any reporting on this, I did a story on the, the merits of the story itself which is, say, very hard to evaluate. Shannon Bond, uh, the digital desk, did stories about the question of was it appropriate uh, for uh, major social media platforms uh, such as Facebook and uh, Twitter to try to constrict how much circulation this story got. So it wasn't as though we spent no time on it. It's just that there are only so much, uh, so many stories you can do. You know, I'll leave you with this thought on this particular issue. You know, uh, Zainab uh, Tufeki, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her name, but she uh, is a scholar at UNC. She's written for the New York Times and other places. And she says, you know, this is less about censorship and more about the fight for attention. And it's not that there are these wars over free speech. It's really a question of what stories, what questions, what scandals are you going to give priority to? And that's a question of how, where we give it priority for our listeners and readers uh, when it comes to NPR, but also the question of where you're going to put your, your energies, particularly this close to an election. It seems that there are similar stories like Fast and the Furious, that, that gun running story, like not the very facts of Benghazi, but what conservative turned Benghazi into that become you know, start, start spreading like wildfire in a certain segment of the media, which is right-wing media. And then I, as the discerning consumer, do appreciate when the rest of the media weighs in, knocks down part of it, acknowledges part of it, because I do find, you know, I have relatives who are like, what about this Bob Alinsky? And when you can meet them a third of the way and say, well, it is true that he did run a company with Hunter Biden, they will say, okay, you're not just dismissing it as Russian information. So what I'm saying is that ideally as a news consumer or you know, to expand it out as citizens, I, I, I think that perhaps being very cautious and remembering the lesson of Comey is understandable. And yet I don't, I do wonder if the ideal isn't to put out the best accurate information in the timeliest manner and hope and trust that news consumers are and voters and citizens are up to the challenge of understanding what that information is. And it seems to me that, at least in this case, the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, other great news sources have definitely said we will, we are going to, in, in, in the temporal mode, we're going to hold back much more than we're going to, you know, try to rush and get our version of the story out there. It does seem they are very much looking at the election and learning the lesson of Comey. Well, I don't think they're doing it as partisans. I mean, look, if you, you think about what you just described as a, as a journalistic ideal of saying, well, this is out there, this is important, it's been publicly uh, attested that this is uh, an allegation, somebody authoritative should come forward and make the best available version of facts uh, understandable and presented to the public, right? Yeah, and to interrupt, and to interrupt, if only to, ta if only to take the mainstream media, which I think usually does a great job, off the hook for that criticism of you ignored this story. They could sure. say, no, we didn't. Sure. So, I mean, that's what Vox made a meal of, right? They'd say, what is the truth about death panels? Or what's the truth? You know, right? Like, that's, that's all useful stuff. And I guess that might have been pre-Vox, uh, Ezra Klein, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, you know, if you look at what even my editor, 
not my direct editor, but NPR's managing editor, Terry Samuel said he was saying it about a specific story, a specific claim. He wasn't saying Hunter Biden isn't worthy of scrutiny, that the question of whether or not the Bidens traded on the family name, the question of whether Joe Biden was compromised. So far, you know, even the Republican Senate investigation run by Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, desperate to find something on the Bidens, didn't find something on Joe Biden. But nonetheless, I think it's worth scrutinizing. Of course, I think family uh, links and ties and businesses are, are worth scrutinizing when it comes to high government officials. That's what's made life so exhausting under this administration, right? But I think it's absolutely fair game. Uh, and I think some of the questions that Bobolinsky raises should be posed and addressed. The problem is that you know, there's also something of a, uh, what should we say, a scandal minting factory, a, a scandal industrial complex that you know seems in search of scandals to to tie up the public discourse and the media in. And so you can decide if, as I think is legitimate, like, let's look and see what's there. Is Solyndra a scandal? Well, it turned out that company didn't make back money on that investment. But if you looked at it from a bigger picture, uh, and yes, one of the people, ex uh, leading executives, possibly a CEO, you know, had given money to Biden, Obama, but given that it's a question of alternative fuels, maybe that wasn't surprising given what Obama and Biden were supporting. And as part of a larger portfolio, some of the investments worked and some of them didn't. Ultimately, it didn't go that far, but it was a calling card for years. And the question was, did the New York Times, did the Wall Street Journal, did NPR ignore it? No, they didn't ignore it. They looked at it, but they didn't really ignore it. You know, so the question is, is it sufficient? Should we be devoting time for it? You know, Fox News' reporters found that a lot of the initial claims that were uh, circulated by the New York Post about uh, Hunter Biden and his dad – couldn't be verified. It wasn't good enough for them to report. But it was good enough for them to spend some dozens of hours talking about uh, to the exclusion of the pandemic, not the total exclusion, but, you know, dwarfing coverage of the pandemic and discussion of other political issues. You know, it was kept alive as part of the discourse. Now, NPR and The New York Times don't have to decide to do something or not do something because Fox, of what Fox News does. But the question is, are you substituting the decision making uh, processes of others for your own. I think that more than ever, particularly with social media, the way in which we're all connected, the way in which we're all part of a larger conversation, uh, even in a time of polarization, that we have to take those things into account more than we used to. But I don't think that they necessarily have to dictate choices because otherwise you're essentially surrendering real estate, even if you're debunking at times. You're surrendering real estate time and time and time again. I think you have to pick and choose your shots. Some of them are you go all in. Some of them you go maybe waist deep. And some of them you say, we've looked at it and, you know, it's not really worth our reporting. Those are, again, decisions that are of judgment. These are not scientific calibrations. If portions, large portions, medium portions of this story prove out, will the media have some splaining to do? Or is it enough to say when we did our dive into it, we couldn't? ascertain the the veracity of central claims. I mean, the, the difficult truth of journalism is there's stuff that we believe could be true that we don't put in print or on the air all the time. You know, you're doing your best to vet information before you put it out there. Leslie Stahl was talking to Trump at one point and uh, during her 60 Minutes interview, the version of which I was able, you know, many of us were able to watch thanks to the president posting it on Facebook. And at one point she says, well, you know, I can't have you do that. I, I We have to present information that's verified to our audiences. That is what you try to do when you're not simply 
allowing people to talk extemporaneously live. You are trying to ensure that they're putting, you know, their opinions are presented, their their understandings of the world are, are reflected fairly, but also that the facts that you're presenting to the world are, are, are at least verified, particularly for, you know, when you're not doing interviews, you're doing straight ahead reporting. I think it's hard to determine the truth of things that happened, you know, one, two, three, four, five years ago in the absence of taking some time and doing some real reporting. So the idea that you can just hurry up and make it so or that there's there's a truth bank in a closet in the back cupboard of the second floor of the New York Times building or the Wall Street Journal's offices where they can just go and pull it out and slap it in the paper. Thank God somebody finally asked. We've had this here all along. That's not the way it works. No. I mean, I know that. I also know that if well, it's very complicated. If portions of this really do prove to be true, it's going to be the bloody shirt that conservatives wave for years to come. And it will certainly seem they have a point. One argument against that is, yes, but just because something turned out to be true doesn't mean that we didn't do all our due diligence and we couldn't ascertain that it was true before the election. There's another even more complicated part of that, which is that a tactic, uh, and David French writes about this really well in the dispatch, a tactic of disinformation is something called salting, where you put some elements of truth, but also some elements of the lie you want to propagate right next to each other. So it could very well prove or turn out that there were elements of this that were true and weren't reported on, but it were th- it was the big elements and the big charges that can never turn out to be proven because they were never true. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, Biden's been asked repeatedly to authenticate the veracity of certain emails as actually having been sent by a text sent by him or an email sent by his son or whatever. And my sense is the campaign's holding back because a lot of it they don't know everything on. And a lot of it, you know, it might be a single thing is true, but that saying, yes, that's true will be used to authenticate other stuff that they believe not to be true. So or not to be real. And so that's complicated as well. In terms of the bloody shirt, you know, if Biden were to come to office or even if Biden were to lose, but that large amounts of this would be true, I'm sure conservatives uh, could point to that and say, look at this failing by the press. I'm not certain that the failing of the press in that case, however, will be about whether this particular narrow story is true, but more broadly, the press has been looking at the question. I mean, my God, think about impeachment. You know, what did that involve? It involved questions about pressures being brought to bear to try to publicize uh, allegations against uh, Joe Biden's uh, the, the notion that Joe Biden had acted corruptly in Ukraine while in office, right? You know, if the press has failed over the past two years to think about Joe Biden, his international in- uh, involvements of himself and his son in different ways and that there was corruption there that we didn't turn up as the press, then that will be a failing. But that's going to be more than a failing of the last 11 days of the election. The idea that suddenly you have to turn in the homework assignment that's a huge uh, term paper uh, and and that you failed in the last 15 minutes of the term paper, that's not the way that works. That will have been a a greater failure to to, to vet and report on Joe Biden. It may be that there's stuff out there on him. And again, it may be some or all of this is true. It may be is not great building blocks for good journalism. Like I appreciated the Wall Street Journal reporting what they could and being transparent about what they could show and not show. And the Post kind of did that, but then assumed it was all true anyway. 
I want to thank you, David Folkenflik. And I also want to point out to the listeners that in this interview, I played the role of me and my opinions and just my niggling doubts. And David was asked to speak for essentially the media, the mass media, the mainstream media, not always uh, positions that he has, but he articulated them well. It was kind of unfair is what I'm saying. And you acquitted yourself nicely, sir. Well, you know, if, if the glove fits, you must acquit. That's right. David Folkenflik covers the media as a correspondent for National Public Radio. Thank you. You bet, Mikey. And now the spiel. For Donald Trump to be reelected president, something has to be off. I mean, besides our national priorities and morality. I mean, the polls. The fairly scientific, I mean, pretty close to accurate numbers that tell us what our fellow citizens are thinking. There is a notion, it's kind of a folk wisdom, that last time the polls were off because the polls told us Hillary would win and she didn't win. Right? You knew that part. I don't have to tell you, discerning listeners, that Hillary Clinton did not win, but she did win the popular vote. The polls were off by 1% of the popular vote nationally. There were some state polls that were off. In fact, the polls that were off the most predicted a Donald Trump win. In fact, he won huge in states like West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky. But there were a lot of polls in the upper Midwest that said Hillary Clinton was going to win, and she failed to win, though narrow defeats in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Why? I'll tell you why. Undersampling of non-college-educated white voters. But you know, doesn't the phrase undersampling of non-college-educated white doesn't it sound so boring? We need a splashier phrase, easier to grasp, a concept that not only explains last time, but has some utility in its application to this time around. Shy Trump voters, the shy Trump vote. The theory is that all these polls are wrong because voters, Trump voters, never Biden voters, are too shy to say, I support Trump. And just like it was true last time, editors note, it really wasn't. But just like it was true last time, it very well may explain this time why the polls are wrong. CBS's Nora O'Donnell yesterday credited shy Trump voters for turning around the polls in Iowa, which had been trending toward Biden and Democratic Senate candidate Teresa Greenfield, but now favor Trump and Republican incumbent Joni Ernst. That Iowa poll suggests, in fact, that the shy Trump voter is emerging. Right. That independents are going back towards Donald Trump, that actually some women are returning to the Republican fold who were there in 2016 and may have not been able to say it publicly in a poll or to their friends, that that has come back. Now, look, Joe Biden can win without Iowa. There's no doubt about that. But it's a question about... Maybe sending a message, though. Right, about maybe maybe about other places. And that's why sort of that's this, is that a canary in a coal mine or is Mm -hmm. it an outlier? See, shy Trump voters. Only it makes no sense because the theory of shy Trump voters is that they're not just Trump voters, but you could fill in the blank, but they're also shy. But if a voter tells a pollster that she supports Trump, she's not being shy. She's being unshy. What we have is an actual trend, which is that pollsters have found a movement in sentiment in Iowa plus a folk explanation shy Trump voters. But when you think about it, shy Trump voters seems to graft on to the movement of the trend, but it actually contradicts it. If they were shy, they wouldn't be telling the pollsters. But you know what? Someone else calls bullshit on the concept of the shy Trump voter, and he is a world-renowned expert on bullshit. We have a lot of people that say, uh, we don't want to talk to you, and then they go vote for Trump, right? You know, the hidden voter or whatever they call them. 
Somebody said they're the shy voters. My people are not shy. Trump speaking in Fayetteville, North Carolina today. The shy Trump voter idea is being perpetuated by pollsters like Robert Cahaley of the Trafalgar Group, who was on our show. He was one of the few pollsters to correctly predict Trump would win Michigan and Pennsylvania, and he got the overall electoral college count right in 2016. On that basis, I had him on. We talked about his methods. I think if you heard that interview, you heard my skepticism. He calls shy Trump voters the social desirability effect, and he says that he as a pollster is able to discern and divine what the shy Trump voter or the person engaging in social desirability really wants to say. Also, Kahaley doesn't release much data about how he gets to his figures. So last week, when he released some data of how he polled in Michigan, it caused, well, I'm going to say a little bit of shock because Kahaley said Biden was losing Michigan. But the reason was that he had almost 30% of the black vote and over half the Hispanic vote backing Trump. He even had Trump winning 30% of Democrats. That seems and seemed to the experts really, really weird. In fact, a lot of Kahaley's analysis can be called, technical term, wrong. Yeah, he got some elections right. 2016 was a big one. He got a lot wrong, too. In 2018 in Arizona, he said McSally would beat Cinema. Cinema won in Florida. He had Nelson up by two in his last poll to Rick Scott. Rick Scott won. The year before, he said Doug Jones would lose to Roy Moore in Alabama. In the called it right column, Kahaley would probably include his call of Ted Cruz and Brian Kemp of Georgia because he said each would win and they did. Only his last poll had Cruz beating Beto O'Rourke by nine. He won by two and a half. And he had Kemp beating Stacey Abrams by 12 for governor of Georgia. 12. He won by 1.4%. Bear with me. I'll read the last 10 polls in that race by such pollsters as Emerson and Fox and NBC and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Here we go. Tie, Kemp up two, Kemp up two, Kemp up two, Kemp up two, tie, tie, Abrams up one, Kemp up two, and then the very last poll, the Trafalgar poll, Kemp up 12. Like I said, he won by 1.4. Is that getting it right? Because he was on the right side of which candidate won? Or was he enormously off, probably due to his highly unorthodox methods? So I still think, airing my interview with Kaylee, which came under some criticism, I think it was a service, because you were hearing from the largest, loudest outlier, got to understand some of his methods, and I made him contend with some pushback on things like the Bradley effect seeming to have to be discredited, and why he predicted Pennsylvania would be stolen. Let me play some of the uh, original interview I did with him on that issue. I think Pennsylvania is a very interesting case. It's the state Trump is most likely to be win but is most likely to be a victim of voter fraud. There, Pennsylvania has a long history of the Philadelphia voter fraud, and I, I believe that um, we, it will be significant in Pennsylvania. So that's the number one state I think You're he, Biden. he could win and lose. But right now you have Biden up by 2.4% in Pennsylvania. I do. But I, yeah. I told you. I think but if he loses, you're still saying it'll be because of voter fraud? But I don't think it would matter because I, I think it's that one's gonna, probably going to be taken from him. So we went back and forth a little on why Kahaley was citing voter fraud as the reason that Trump would lose when his very polls designed to unearth shy Trump voters indicated at the time he talked to me that Trump was actually trailing. So finally, I put the question of the taste of the pudding right to him. If Biden wins, what's the excuse going to be? Is it going to be voter fraud? Is it going to be the fact that Charles Barkley participated in the Alabama Senate election? 
So on election day or election week, the tide goes out and we see who's swimming naked and who's swimming with trunks. Look, the numbers are the numbers. In 2016, you got the numbers right. If it turns out in 2020 that your numbers are wrong, are you going to say my numbers are wrong or are you going to say maybe it's voter fraud, maybe it's a deus ex Charles Barkley? Well, first of all, I was giving a compliment to Charles Barkley. My numbers were wrong because Charles Barkley did a great job. But that was an excuse. Right. I did not anticipate how effective he would be. As far as voter fraud, he told me he does believe Biden will win only because of voter fraud. As much as that didn't make sense because at the time he showed Biden was leading. It's logically inconsistent. Conveniently for Kahaley, since we spoke, the next poll of Pennsylvania showed the race a tie. And the latest Trafalgar poll released within the last 24 hours of Pennsylvania now has Trump ahead by two. Mm -hmm. So there now is no logical divide between his claiming Biden has more support and also claiming Trump will have the election stolen from him. No evidence of that, by the way. It indicates Kahaley, like Trump, is setting himself up as advancing an unfalsifiable argument that will mean he wasn't wrong, or in Trump's case, didn't lose, but that horribly unfair forces were aligned against him. Or I guess Kahaley could be right. It could happen. I really don't think it will. Could, right? Most likely it won't. I see no evidence that his methods are correct, that his polls are accurate. I see no numbers. I see no data supporting that. I see mostly a story that the media is wrong. I see a conceit, that being the shy Trump voter. And I see a vested interest in staking out a claim untethered to empiricism, but very useful if the long shot comes in. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He'll be playing with the B.B. Rebozo Trio at the Garden State Arts Center. Margaret Kelly, Gist producer, will be participating in duck boats for Trump. There is a parade and somehow the boats start launching themselves into the air like a James Bond movie, Duck Boats for Trump. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. She's worried that a caravan for Trump will cause backups from the Dan Ryan to the Jane Byrne interchange all the way to the Raritan Toll Plaza out by Spaghetti Junction and causing a sig alert in Hacienda Heights because that would be a national movement. The gist, folk and flick on Bobolinsky. It's as good as Guy Raz on Khalid Al-Fawaz, but it doesn't touch Pajoli on Berlusconi. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.